When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Truth be told, I was assigned this monster book my sophomore year of college during my introduction to British literature class. It was where I read Jane Eyre and a few other books that we've been covering on the show. I read, oh, seven and a half pages of this book before just committing myself to flunking that particular paper. This book is an absolute beast with all the trappings of the very best Victorian novels, an endless character list, conflict that revolves around minutia-riddled feuds between Protestants and Catholics, and about 45 pages describing dresses. But to be fair, 45 pages in a book that's almost 900 total isn't a whole lot. Today on the podcast, we're putting on our patents and getting down into the provincial muck of George Eliot's Middlemarch. Greetings and welcome to Fuckboys of Literature. I'm your host, Emily Edwards. Middlemarch is somewhat of a dividing line for those of us who were lucky enough to be English majors. We either loved it, hated it, or, like I confessed earlier, never even bothered to read it. But now that I'm older and wiser and actually read the whole damn thing, I'm here to say I really enjoyed it, despite the word count and all of those fuckboys. With me today is Miranda Butler, English PhD candidate at UC Riverside and Victorianist, and host of a science fiction history podcast called Podcast 13, who suggested we chat all things Middlemarch. How are you today? I'm so excited to have someone who will just talk about this long, long tome with me. So I'm great. I am always afraid when I call something Victorian that I'm not actually getting the time period right. But I, I think we're okay on middle March. Am I correct? Well, yes. Uh, interesting you should ask, though, because it is definitely a Victorian novel. Oh, gosh, I'm not even going to know the year that it was published um, <laughs> from the 1870s. We could Google it. Um, so, I mean, George Eliot is writing in the 1870s generally, and I'll do a fact check for you on this particular text. But the interesting thing is that she said it in like the end of the 1820s, which technically Queen Victoria took the throne in 1837. Oh, so, um I didn't realize yeah. that. I didn't realize it wasn't <laughs> contemporary to when she was writing it, because I'm not a Victorianist, so those years kind of all kind of blend together for me. <laughs> yeah, fair. No, so it was written in 1871, which I was going to say, but if I was wrong, I'd be way too embarrassed. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, it's set uh, 40 years, 30 years, I'm bad at math, prior to the time that she wrote it, which is... I don't know, it would be like us writing a novel that takes place in the 1970s or something. Um, so, yeah, so I mean, it's definitely one of the essential Victorian novels, but she's playing with history in a way that people might not realize. Gotcha. Okay, I hadn't realized that. And also, listeners will notice that we're referring to George Eliot as she. It does make a huge difference, I'm assuming, in the fact that George Eliot was actually a woman writing under a pseudonym. Yes, we should definitely say that. Um, her real name was Marianne Evans. Mm -hmm. uh, but interestingly, she seems to, in studies of, you know, literature, just be referred to by her pen name consistently. It's like, 
I think we get the feeling that that was how she wanted to be known. And unlike the, you know, the Brontes who published under fake names and then we just call them the Brontes. Yeah. It's like, no, this is George Eliot. This is who she is. And, um, she's, do you know off the top if she tried to like pass as a man because she was married twice and for all intents and purposes was living as a woman. She just wrote under George Eliot. Yeah, that's a good question. I just, I, to the best of my knowledge, think she was trying to pass her novels as being by a man. Um, you can tell when she's like, she's using all of these, like, what are they? Uh, epigraph, epigraphs. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's using all of like other of her books. She uses like Greek and Latin quotations. And she's like, see, I went to like boys school yeah, exactly. in college. <laughs> she didn't. No. Um, so, yeah, there are a few people who figured her out. Charles Dickens was one of them. Um, but she was trying to pass her pass her writing off as by a male author, I think, to be taken more seriously. Because yeah. she knew you could be a woman author, but you would write, uh, as she called them, silly novels by lady novelists. Oh, but, isn't that charming? Um, <laughs> yeah. Internalized I mean, misogyny. <laughs> I think she was trying to make the point that, you know, women should not be expected to do that. Right. But there is a lot of internalized misogyny in mis- in Middlemarch that... Oh, gosh, um, yeah. For this being my third read of the book, I had no patience for it. The first time I was like, oh, gender is complex. And, like, the Victorian period was really difficult for women. And then this time I was like, Dorothea, I cannot deal with you. You are better than this. Like, I can't. She is so... She, you know... A major accolades to Elliot for making the most complex person in her book a very young woman. Dorothea is like 18 to like 21 throughout the span of this book. So she is mm-hmm. so young and so, you know, she learns so much throughout the course of this book. But at the same time, most of her women are like kind of dumb and a little bit shallow. <laughs> Yes. Oh, for sure. It's it's really a toss up, like you said, so many fuckboys and just toxic people generally. Mm -hmm. Um, There's very few people who are like, what do you what is even the word like worthwhile? Like, who? Who is worth my time? Mary Garth? Oh, too bad she's stuck with Fred now. I know. So with the subheading of the book, it does have a study of provincial life. And man, it really makes you realize how much she hated provincial life. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And the, the study part is a part that scholars like to talk about because she is, and you see all these references to like science, and there's the whole mm-hmm. plot with Lady being a doctor. And study part, it's like actually, he, here is an intense observational study of like really intense detail. Um, so it's not only the I hate provincial life, but the I'm going to show you every detail about this town and its like ecosystem mm-hmm. of, you know, Mrs. Cadwallader just messing around She's and so going awful. amok. She's like, my favorite, is that okay? That I'm like, yes. oh my gosh, what a, what a great, like, I picture her as this, like, old meddling woman who's yeah. like, she knows who she is and is not apologetic about it. Yeah, she's, she's just definitely like, wearing a bonnet and has, like, a permanent scowl and just lives <laughs> to fuck with people. It's fantastic. 
Yes. So I guess for some people, we can assume that most of the people who are listening have not actually read the book, but it's really difficult to sort of, can we sort of sum up the, the plot in a couple minutes, do you think? Sure, we can try. We can work together. Yes. I will say the BBC miniseries is excellent um, and much shorter than the book. Okay, so good. if anyone is is into period dramas, um, it's, I don't know, six episodes and it's uh, got Rufus Sewell in it as Ladislaw. Yes, uh, who's apparently but... a huge heartthrob for our followers. So rock on. We like weird boys, apparently. <laughs> I like him, but not in The Man in the High Castle. No. Uh, <laughs> Except when they're but... playing Nazis. <laughs> so, so, let's see. The main character, Dorothea, uh, is a young woman who decides to marry a man old enough to be her father, who yep. is a scholar. Mm-hmm. He's boring and awful. He's and terrible. And he has a young cousin who is old enough to or young enough to be his nephew um who we meet briefly but don't think anything of Mm -hmm. um meanwhile one of the other plots is that the town's doctor um mr lydgate is uh he's entered the town he's like an up-and-coming like i've got new medical practices i want to help poor people i'm not just going to make you pay me for medicines you don't need yeah and he's kind of like a revolutionary um and he has all these grand plans to like make a name for himself and his own methods of medicine but the town um favorite girl rosamond yes um successfully sort of seduces him but in a very victorian way of She's blonde and helpless and innocent and pretty. Yeah, she's, and... she's husband hunting and doesn't want to marry any of the boys in Middlemarch with her. And so the second there's fresh blood, she's like, you're mine, and just like takes him out. Yes. And she takes him and he's like, he's like, I'm not going to get married. And he goes to her house to tell her he's not he's not ready to get married. And it's like the narrator says, and he left an engaged man. Yes. <laughs> Oh, Rosamond, you convinced, so Rosamond, the very pretty, you know, husband hunter convinces this doctor to marry her. um, And that becomes like one of the other plot lines. Mm -hmm. Eventually, Dorothea's old husband dies. Thank God. Um, Yes, I kept thinking he died in like the first hundred pages, but it takes way too long for him to die. literally two thirds of the book before this (laughs) old man kicks it. And you want to like break and open a piñata and like spray the world with champagne because he is so terrible. He is awful to her. So yeah, you read two thirds of the book of this young, you know, 19 year old woman who she seems actually very uh, intelligent and interested in academics, uh, but because she's a woman and because this guy, his name is Casabon, her Mm -hmm. old man husband, because he's a misogynist, he's like, she thinks that marrying him means she'll get to learn things and read things, but he's like, nah, women don't do this and can't do that. Like, You're supposed to look after the grounds and give me airs, even though it's never actually said whether or not their marriage is consummated. Oh, that's what I was going to talk about. Like we, I think, I think personally that this is a very, very unconsummated, unsatisfied marriage. And finally he dies. And in true Victorian novel fashion, there is like a scandalous will 
where Naturally. he leaves in his final wishes that um, she can inherit his fortune, but it will all be taken from her if she marries his cousin, Will Ladislaw. Yes. Um, she had met and befriended, but she being naive and inexperienced is just like, oh no, he doesn't like me. No one likes me. Yeah. And admittedly, she's very pious. Like, the idea of cheating on her husband does not pass through her mind. Well, that's the worst part is that she, yeah, pious is the word. She is described as, like, a very religious woman and, like, a martyr and, like, mm-hmm. a saint. And and so um, when this comes out that he, her husband, is going to take the property away for if she married this man, it's like, well, I never would have thought of that. Mm-hmm. And then... As Mrs. Cadwallader is just the town busybody, but at the end, Mrs. Cadwallader is like, I don't know what you expected to happen. Like, you treat Dorothea terribly, and then you forbid her to marry someone. That's exactly what she's going to do, is end up marrying him. Exactly. <laughs> and so, spoilers, she falls in love with the cousin, and eventually that's the, the sort of... Uh, key romantic thread of the end of the novel. Yeah. And and of course, Ladislaw is also painted as being, um, he's, f- quote, like foreign. You know, he's got dark <laughs> hair and things like that. And it turns out he's Jewish, is that? Or like of Jewish descent? Yeah, they, they're, George Eliot is uh, bad at this. There is some casual anti-Semitism in George Eliot generally. Yeah. Um, where they think he's Italian. And again, this is all from our perspective. We're like, these are all just like vaguely different shades of yeah. white European people. Um, but yeah, they're like, oh, he's Italian. Oh, he's Polish. Oh, he's, you know, he's essentially, he's not British right. and he's yeah. not not white British traditional uh, peerage level of like exactly. name and family. And then, yeah, it turns out, um, I do believe it turns out he has some Jewish heritage, but it also turns out that the other plot line is that his parents, his mom ran away from her family and the town um, money lender guy is somewhat related by marriage to Will Ladislaw. Yes. And Will Ladislaw's money comes from basically in, what's the word? Improper, bad, I don't know. Yeah, like sources. You can infer probably, you know, like prostitutes gambling, all sorts of dens of iniquity that money should not be coming from. I don't have my personal opinion on what the source is, but that's exactly it. It's like something un- quote unquote unethical is where yeah. the fortune came from. And so then again, it's like, oh, not only is he vaguely foreign, but also the the money that he would have had or that his family had it's isn't good, yeah. good money. Yeah, it's tainted money. Um, and that's, I think, the other, if we were summarizing it to somebody the other key plot line is that the villain, his name is Bolstrode, and mm-hmm. he's the banker and the rich man mm-hmm. who presents himself as very holy and religious and is super judgmental and mean to everybody. Um, and then it turns out that not only did he, it was the, the fortune um, that he like married into and got, like that's tainted money. And there was some other, uh, so Will Ladislaw's family, um, 
deserved the money and he pretended right. not not to be able to find the heir to the fortune and in doing so he got the fortune himself but it turned out that will Ladislaw was the proper heir to the money anyways yeah and that Bolstrode spent his whole life pretending he didn't know that even though he did, he did so that definitely. he himself he himself the holiest best human man yes like, oh I did that so so that I could keep the money for myself yeah it's so like, it's very opera. soap opera-y. It's really intense. There's so many ins and outs and everyone's related. And it's just, you. it was serialized off the bat, wasn't it? It wasn't published as yeah. just like a book. Yes, which I think helps explain a lot because you're... Uh, your multi-plot novel is like, come back next, you know, exactly. Like, find out what they'll do. And I even described it to my partner as, like, a young adult romance. Like, these tropes of, like, and then Dorothea walks in on Ladislaw flirting with somebody oh, else. Oh, no. Yeah. Never love her. And, like, it's so, some of the tropes are almost just, like, contemporary young adult romance. Or we could call it soap opera, too. Mm -hmm. It's just very, I think it's, um, it's touted as realistic, uh, in the like gender dynamics and the social issues of this provincial town but at the same time these like these plots are very um i don't know like contrived yes that's, that's the right word yeah. yeah it's just so fascinating because to watch all of these people and also i guess young adult literature at least the ya that i've been able to read um it doesn't also come with the baggage of religion usually and, <laughs> and so to to saddle all of these characters with the additional sort of uh weights of both religion and what is generally propriety and the rules of manners of it it's like when dorothea's on her honeymoon and casaban just basically like leaves her in the dust he doesn't give a shit about her and then he gets casaban gets so mad that dorothea runs into his cousin and invites him over just to like hang out because they're closer in age and Casabon's just like ah she's screwing him like ah what a slut I married and you're just like oh my god dude just because they were alone in the presence of like the maids and the butlers doesn't mean she was up to no good <laughs> But they stared at, like, naked classical sculptures together. It was basically sexual. Clearly this woman has such loose morals, even though she is the embodiment of just, like, the most... The, the number of times they call her pure throughout the book is just astounding. And you have to realize that, like, she and Casabon, like, they kissed when they got married, and that was it. Like, the way he treats her and the way he abhors her femininity, it's... A, it's stifling yes and abhors her femininity is such a good way to describe this because it's like he he as just the worst man of all time probably yeah. uh yeah he he is like well i never intended to get married but you know i would like to have someone take care of me a little bit mm -hmm. and you know just sort of like no, it's not even a trophy wife, because at least a person with a trophy wife is honest about their intentions to sort of have, like, a physically attractive, you know, physically fulfilling relationship. Yeah. But this is just, like, I want to keep a caged pet Absolutely. in my home. Absolutely. Like, he... 
he wants to control her. He wants to have her when he wants her and forget her when he doesn't. And he doesn't want her to have any opinions or ask any questions or, you know, it's a, a specific kind of misogyny. Cause I think we see the more passionate male misogyny, um, like Lydgate later, mm-hmm. he, he yells and he gets upset yeah. and he is insulting. Uh, Casabon is just like passively just tearing her down with offhanded comments and directions and assumptions and treatment yeah. and it's that it's really weird misogyny that you still run into now with men who have literally no use for women whatsoever and you're just like you expect misogyny to come with a lot of like aggressive sexuality or at least i usually do when i read about it like yeah. lidgate definitely has like aggressive like sexual hatred for rosamond but like Casabon just detests all women and you feel almost bad for Dorothea's sister whose name is Celia and Celia was almost like I'm in love with the you know the guy who owns all the property next door but I think Dorothea you should probably marry him because like if you don't it's gonna get weird you're gonna make a mistake and then when Dorothea goes and marries Casabon Celia's just like I told her I was ready to sacrifice everything but she didn't listen so what am I gonna do yeah, and that's the other thing. If it's your very first read of the novel and you don't know what's coming, you expect, or maybe, I mean, maybe you don't, you yeah. know, George Eliot's a sort of feminist author and something horrible is going to happen in the marriage. But like you, you think, oh, well, maybe, maybe Dorothea, this sort of saintly martyr woman, like she genuinely just wants to marry an older man and live a quiet life. Yeah. Like, me, me personally, I try never to judge anyone's choice in romantic partner. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, no, you should have judged that choice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it was not that she just is attracted to smart, nerdy guys. It's that she has no self-worth and is uh, accepting her mistreatment from this man and almost thinks, like, she blames herself constantly. All the time. And eventually he gets ill, um, just sort of like the the nondescript Victorian nervous illness. Mm -hmm. Um, The doctor tells us it's probably like some sort of heart condition that it's like you can't excite him um, or upset him. And then Dorothea is like, okay, well now I can, I can never disagree with him. I can never do anything Mm -hmm. I want. I just have to hate, like destroy myself and hate myself so that I don't make my husband have a heart attack. Um, It's amazing how convenient Victorian heart ailments are in that it's just, oh, your husband has a heart condition, so just completely debase yourself before him or else you'll be a murderer. And Dorothea is just like, all right. It's so sad. Doctor, I'll do that. And then Um, it's, it's worse when you remember that Dorothea's like, 18. She's so young. And the age of majority in this time is like 21. Everybody's like, why are you letting her uncle, like, why are you letting your niece, who's your your ward, get married before she's 21? She's so young. She shouldn't be doing this. And her uncle's just kind of like, it's what she wants. Like, <laughs> Well, right. And that's the other thing is that it, I mean, it's a complex question, but the the two girls, Dorothea and her sister Celia, are raised by their bachelor unmarried uncle mm-hmm. because their parents aren't around. Um, and so the, uh, you know, Casabon needs the permission of her guardian. 
And then Mr. Brooke is his own sort of special character. He's the such uncle. a weirdo. He's delightful. He's, such a, he's just like a blundering dad who like thinks he's progressive but isn't. Yeah. Uh, so he's like, oh, I would never hinder my ward from her wishes. And it's like, ah, maybe you should though. Yeah. Like, <laughs> exactly. Maybe. You know, he's, and, and they say, like, Kasavan is, you know, almost the same age as this woman's father. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I will say that sometimes in any time period, people marry with an age difference. But it's actually like we have this idea that Victorians were like, okay, with marrying off 14 year olds. It's really not true. Exactly. Like, actually. The 19th century was slightly more modern than most lay people think. And they're like, yeah, you should be 21 to marry with, uh, you know, without your parental consent. And Mm -hmm. you don't have to get carted off when you're 18 or 19. Like, no one expects you to do that. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, he's like. Perfect segue into like one of my favorite character groups, which is Fred Vincy and Mary Garth. Oh my gosh, my heart. Mary Garth is definitely like the Victorianist grad student favorite. Like everybody loves Mary Garth. And literally in my notes, I have long live Mary Garth. She's my favorite character. She's so amazing. Yes. So how would we describe her? She's a hardworking, like, uh, very she's, savvy, intelligent. Yeah, she's pragmatic, and you're right. Like she's very. Um, she sees through all of like the screen, the smoke screens that everybody's putting off, and she can read everybody and everybody's intentions. It's amazing. Yes, like she has all of the right kinds of knowledge. Like she is. We learn like educated and intelligent and Mm -hmm. she is employed as like a teacher sort of governess job at some point um and it's like she has this sort of education but also just that ability to look at a social situation and know exactly yes that kind of social intelligence of what people's motives are and also she's just genuinely kind because we're introduced to her when she's nursing her what is he her uncle her sick uncle yeah and everyone is kind of the sharks are swarming this sick uncle because he's rich and they all hope that he will leave them their some of his money um and they're just being nice to him because he's dying and rich but she's just like she's I don't know to me she's just like yeah I know everyone's doing that but like I'm gonna be good to my family members and I'm gonna make people like yeah live a happy comfortable life like she doesn't seem motivated by that yeah she seems to just kind of think like I have the time I have the means it's the right thing for me to do to take care of this like dying abusive old man who treats her like absolute garbage but she's just kind of like it's the correct thing to do and besides like at this point in time I forgot her uncle's name but um he it's rumored that he's going to give all of his money to the guy that Mary Garth wants to marry, Fred Vincy. And the entire Vincy family is just big old shitheads. They're terrible people. But Fred is like, <laughs> he could flip a switch and go the other way, but he's, it's going to take a lot of work on his behalf. <laughs> Fred is the most frustrating, in my opinion, of all of the fuckboys in Middlemarch. I like, agree. 
Fred is, uh, so if people who didn't read it, Fred is the brother of Rosamond, the sort of dumb blonde husband hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that whole family is just motivated by all the wrong things. They're, they're moving up in the world. So like Fred was sent to university. He almost got to the end. His parents paid all this money to educate him with a gentleman's education. Mm-hmm. And then he just doesn't take the exams and he's a, a wandering like uh playboy <laughs> playboy yeah he just um he's just an idiot really yeah, though exactly it's not even like and i think this is the thing that mary garth picks up on and that everyone except for mrs cadwallader is guilty of is that he just like pretends and has pretense of like um being something other than what he is yeah which is instead of just accepting that he is a a directionless you know young what mm -hmm. is he young 20s directionless playboy guy yeah he's like 21 22 and he's he's like i don't really want to go into um you know religion he doesn't really want to i you know work at a church but that's what his education is for and then he's just like or oh, i could just fuck around for a little while and everybody's just like you can go fuck around for a little while your parents are upper middle class you have a little bit of spending money and then of course he gets himself into like massive amounts of like gambling and other wink wink debts and he's just like what am i gonna do i know i'll get mary's father to sign off like as a co-holder of my debt and then he balks on paying it back and mary garth's like entire family loses all of their money. It's terrible. I listened to this. <laughs> I listened to this part, the Fred Vincy mm-hmm. and the horse part out loud on audiobook. And I was just like seething with anger. And then at different points, I was just like, because when the voice actor on Audible was like doing the conversation <laughs> between um, like Caleb Garth who is the most benevolent. So Mary's dad is just a hardworking, like farm manager. And they don't have a lot of money. They have a big family. I would describe the Garth family as like the Weasley family in Harry Potter. They're like these good hearted, good people without a lot of money who nonetheless like give their best and they're all to their friends and the people they love. And yet Fred uh, just is like, oh, I spent all this money. I'm in tons of debt. His parents won't even help him anymore because he, he doesn't is... even ask them this time. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I've, I, you know, and I think that's another thing is that um, perhaps he would have been better off making his parents who can afford the debt yep. uh, sign off on it. But instead, he goes to. Uh, not only the father of the woman he loves, but like the poorest person he knows. Yeah. And um, then he almost pays off the debt and is like, you know what? I'm going to buy a horse instead. Um, (laughs) Instead, a get rich quick scheme is the best way to go here. He's constantly, and you just you you're just reading this character, and you're like, oh, maybe he's gonna redeem himself. Oh, no, nope, oh, not no, this time. No, nope. nope, missed that no. opportunity. It just went flying and by. I want to say something like, you know, maybe he has a gambling addiction, or like maybe I, if I were to to not read it historically and to just like project modern 20th 21st century Mm -hmm. ideas onto him i could forgive him but that is not the point like he is 
I don't I don't think he is supposed to be viewed as like easily redeemable. No. Um, He's supposed and, to be seen as someone who literally always makes the wrong choice. And you're just sitting uh, there and you're just like, how can anybody be this irresponsible? And then I remember boys when I was 21 and I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's how you can be this irresponsible because this is a generational thing where the boys are never expected to grow up. <laughs> And I think that's really it, too, with him being from this upper middle class family. It's just like, well, his parents are like, oh, you know, you're going to have your dalliances, like take this hundred pounds and run off with it. And, you know, you'll you'll figure yourself out eventually. Meanwhile, Mary, you know, is at home as, you know, a young woman. She is working really hard. She is being so responsible. She is like. Like, the expectation between this young man and this other young woman, I mean, her family is poor, but it's like, no, she is responsible. And I think a lot of the characters, the female characters are expected to be all of these things, mm-hmm. all of these pillars of virtue. And then it's like, oh, that's Fred. He's he's just like that. And the, the funny thing is, is that the Garths, they're not thrilled with the fact that Mary is going to marry Fred, but they're like, we get that it's a step up because like they are like demonstrably poorer than the Vincies. But the Vincies hate the idea of Fred being in love with Mary, which he has been since he was a child. It makes no bones about the fact that Fred has never wanted to marry anyone else but Mary Garth. And Mary Garth is described as being like ugly, like every other page. And it's like, okay, the Vincies have (laughs) such a phenomenal sense of self-worth that they have set up their two eldest children, Fred and Rosamond, to be just like the most money-grubbing worst human beings in the world. And it is somewhat redeeming for me that Fred's just like, I was raised to have all of these bad values or what we see as bad values, but really I will eventually come around to being worthy of Mary Garth. That is the thing that like, I wish I loved more than I do is yeah. that the thing that, that inspires um, Fred to change is that Mary says, you know, if you keep being a fuck up, I'm not going to marry you. Yeah. And then he's like, well, I guess I got to turn it around then. Yeah. Um, and that's good. I'm glad. But, uh, you know, I think she would have just been better off marrying someone who wasn't so terrible. It's kind of true. It's kind of true. You since they don't go too much into the future in like the epilogues of this book. And so you just kind of hope that Fred sticks to it. You just like sit there and you're like, oh, you're in for a rough life, kid. But maybe you'll pull this one out. Like maybe it'll go your way. That is what the epilogue says, though. It's like, you know, they made it okay. He never stopped being an undue optimist. Like, yeah. he would often buy, buy you know, get, get, uh, buy a bad horse and get fooled into a scheme. But he learned how to, like, manage his money. And yeah. so his, his few bad decisions didn't overshadow his whole life. You yeah. Know? People, people are going to make bad financial decisions in their life. But I like that at least the, you know, the epilogue. The narrator's like, yeah, you can't really change someone who's just terrible at decision making. Exactly. You you can give him a a stable job and, you know, a skill because he eventually 
this is, I think, a really interesting point about his plot line that um, he was educated to be a gentleman, mm-hmm. but is just not a person who obviously this education prepared him for the church. And he's like, it would be disingenuous of me to be a clergyman. Yeah. Like, that's not my life. It's not me. I don't enjoy it. I'm not naturally adept at it. And so he kind of takes a step down and becomes a farm manager with Mary's dad doing that kind of hands-on yeah. lower middle-class work and people are disappointed. But it's his I moment of that- humbling. It's just really interesting to watch him take that on and, you know, like choose a lower class career. Yeah, it's humbling, but I also think it's it's kind of empowering to anyone reading it to be like, oh, you know, in this day and age, we're just told that yeah. everyone has to have a college degree and has to like be, you know, in this hyper capitalist blah blah society mm-hmm. we live in as Americans, like we have to do these things. And it's like, you know what though? But like, what if you're just a really good cook? Or yeah, what if exactly. You're, what if you just like, want to be a plumber? Like. <laughs> education that can give you the kind of life you want I think I like that message at least that it's like you know what Fred does like being out on the land he does have skills and interests in management and working on a farm in that way and yeah they say he, he's very good at it so that's it's not a like it's not him I like so much but at least I appreciate that because I think um I think George Eliot was non-traditional and making that message stand out that like it's okay to not to not just keep ladder climbing yeah exactly yeah which I guess brings us right back to Lydgate and Rosamund because they are the most infuriating couple for me in the entire book they are toxic and they feed each other's toxicity (laughs) in the worst way Yeah. yeah I agree so Lydgate was, he's always been a doctor. And when they describe his doctoral practice or his physician practice, it's very forward thinking to the point that you like recognize modern medicine in it. And you're like, yeah, oh, yeah. good job, buddy. Yeah. And then he takes up with Rosamond, who no one should be taking up with. She is just, she is just relentlessly taken down as like a flirt and shallow and spendy and she spends everyone's money and just completely full of herself it's said time and time again that rosamond literally cannot understand interactions between a man and herself in which the man does not want her which is like the most (laughs) perfect way to describe that particular kind of woman Oh, I know. And they also describe her as, um, you know, and it's it seems pretty unfeminist, but here we are. It's like she had no understanding of money except that it was always provided to her, mm-hmm. um, which I think is uh, fairly common for a woman of her social, you know, economic class yeah. at the time. But then people tell her, because unlike today, being a doctor is in the Victorian era, not as high class of a job. It's a hands-on job. It's yeah. like, you, you have know, to touch sick work- people. They don't want, you know. Yeah, you're working with poor people who sometimes can't pay you. Yeah, um, yeah you're touching gross bodies. Like, it's viewed as lesser than the sort of expectation of 
marriage partner her family had in mind. And they all tell her, they're like, you know, he doesn't make a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. And again, sort of like with Dorothea, it's like the characters think they're marrying for the right reason. They think they're marrying. It's like Lydgate keeps saying, oh, we married each other for love, didn't we? And I'm like, (laughs) no, you married each other because you couldn't have sex. It was 1828s. And you wanted to bang, but you couldn't, so you got married, and now you have this and now the you're worst stuck with each other of relationship. Yeah, where like if it was today, you would be like, yeah, those people should have a one night stand and get it out of their system, exactly. and then move on. And they can't, so they're stuck getting married. Yeah, they should have like had a really gross like two week relationship where they like post about each other all the time and then broken up on Instagram. But unfortunately, that wasn't available. I know, I know, that's exactly it. And it's a little astounding when they start going over the finances because the ruin of this couple is money. (laughs) And when- Gross, irresponsible use of money. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, be my guest because it is. It's astounding. They start going over the jewelry and the silver plate and the furniture and the house that they rented. And she just, and you know, he's telling her like, we're going to go bankrupt and ruin everything. And she looks him dead in the eye and just kind of goes, well, you don't expect me to live in an apartment, do you? And just the (laughs) contempt that she has for the fact that her husband isn't going to work himself to literal death to keep her in shit she doesn't need. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Well, and that's the other thing is that she, it says in their list of expenses that she, she bought the best of everything. Mm -hmm. And so she's buying, you know, silverware and she buys the most expensive, like real silver, silver, whatever. Yeah. And he says, you know, we could return those with the, you know, informed intellectual reader or just average adult reader being like, yeah, you could return the 100% sterling silver silverware and get something practical. And she's like, well, how are we to eat without forks and spoons? And you're like, it's not that there's no alternative. It's not that it's like you can have expensive forks or zero forks. Exactly. But she has no concept of this. And she just, there's another point where and I, I can't recall if they tell you exactly how much he makes per year, but he he explains that their house is mm-hmm. three times his rent budget. Yeah. And I think I think of my own, you know, my own salary and my own rent budget. And I'm like, what if I was like, you know, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna get a four bedroom in Pasadena. <laughs> like I, you know, we live, both Emily and I live in the LA area. It's like, why would you do that? I'm a graduate student. I would not go live in the most expensive town in the most expensive apartment. Like, it's just no no adult would do that. Exactly. And here's Rosamond being like, this is what we must do. And then here's Lydgate. And again, he's like, well, I have to please my wife. Um, And he does get angry when she disobeys him. But Mm -hmm. like, obviously he just, he is smart enough to know that her expectations were not going to be realistic with yes. his lifestyle. And he married her anyways. I'm, again, in my reading, assuming for very selfish reasons of she's a hot girl. Yeah. And, they, and you know, other they men have... want her. So he just is like, might as well grab the prize while I can and lives with it for in misery for the rest of his life. <laughs> 
Yes. And the miniseries does a good job of like sussing out the intense lust and like physicality between them. Yeah. Because I do think that that's what this relationship is about. And that people, you know, people of all genders and orientations have these experiences where you, you know, two people get together and, and this happens and you're just really, really hot for each other. Yeah. Um, but you're not but supposed to get married. <laughs> you're not supposed to be like, yeah, but now I'm going to spend all your money and yeah. like make you leave your dream career and all of that yeah. just because we did a screw. Like, it's really bad. I know. And I feel a little bit bad because at some point, Rosamond does lose a pregnancy. And some of her behavior after that, we can, or at least I recognized as postpartum depression. Like, she just becomes very listless. She doesn't want to do anything. She talks about wanting to die. And it's just like, whoa, there are red flags everywhere. But both the book and her husband do not give her, you know, like allowance to have those feelings. And it's probably obviously because like they didn't know that that was a thing back then. But she just keeps getting worse after she loses the pregnancy. She just keeps wanting to fill all of her holes in her soul with stuff. Yeah. Well, the pregnancy is such a good like point of discussion in the Rosamund Lydgate story because mm -hmm. it comes about because Lydgate, so she is like, he has really rich relatives, which is true. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to, you know, what's the word? Like I'm going to present myself them, to, yeah. to them and then I'm going to actually move up in the world because he, his relatives think that he has stepped below his position by being a doctor financially and stuff and they, they don't continue to provide him with money because he has his own, but it's less than he would have had if he'd have, you know, become any other yeah. profession. But uh, she is just constantly ingratiating herself to these rich people. And in doing so, you know, she takes like a horse ride from this family member of Lydgate's mm -hmm. who, uh, you know, I'm just not a person who knows anything about horses, but it's like she's pregnant in the early stages and they say like a horse accident could easily cause a miscarriage. Again, I don't know yeah. modern medicine if that's true, but Lydgate tells her as a doctor, like don't, don't ride a horse. Yeah. And then she goes and does it. And so and she kind of gets think, bucked from the horse. Like, I think they said that it's like a pretty substantial, like she falls off the damn thing and loses her pregnancy. Yeah. She has a severe accident and loses the pregnancy. And so I would never victim blame any woman for losing a pregnancy. And Lydgate tries not to, mm -hmm. but it just fuels his rage. He's like, she didn't obey me. Exactly. And now like this, this, so this, again, we would look at it and be like, you know, it's a postpartum depression. It's a tragedy regardless of why it happened. Yeah. You know? But the husband looks at it as like, um, if she had know, just submitted herself to me, everything would have been fine. <laughs> right. And it's not even, he's not even viewing it as like, I am a medical doctor and I was concerned about accidents. It's like, I am her husband mm -hmm. and she has to do what I say. And this is what you get when you don't listen. Like it's, it's a horribly insensitive, you know, it, it says that he is kind to her face, but like resentful in his own mind, which is just as bad, yeah. you know. 
that he's not grieving the loss in the same way. Yeah. And then I guess we should fast forward to the epilogue where they bring up the fact that like Lidgate dies super young, leaves Rosamond <laughs> alone with a couple sons. And she just like goes on to the next guy, marries wealthy and is just like, eh, my work here is done. That's it. <laughs> And they say, uh, Rosamond, so yeah, this is so good. Uh, Lydgate dies before he's 50. Yeah, he um, dies so and, young. But this is sort of like the whole Dorothea Casabon thing. It's like, there is no way out of this marriage yeah. in this time period and in this town and this, like, um, so if it's awful, you just have to wait for the other person to die. <laughs> and she sure does. And then she... <laughs> She unapologetically marries. It's like a much older, wealthy man. man. Yeah. And and then, though, the funny thing is, it's like, and then she got everything she ever wanted. Yep. And it was a reward. And she says it's a reward. And she never says for what. But, like, the assumption is, like, for living in abject poverty. <laughs> which, like, for the record... She was not. And everybody in this novel, even the poorest people like um, the Garth family, are very middle class. Yes. And if you if you get so I did this just because I I knew I was the Victorianist on the podcast. I like got a uh, uh, what's it called? A inflation calculator. Oh, thank you. And com- compared the amounts of yearly income to today's, you know, money. And it's like, essentially it's being like, how will we ever live on 75 K a year? And it's like, um, like two or three times better than me, a humble English teacher. Like you're going to be fine. Yeah, exactly. On that income. <laughs> oh We're arguing gosh. and feeling awful about these allegedly low amounts of money. Mm-hmm. And none of these amounts are low. I know. Like, and I think, at some point, they discuss, because um, Dorothy's so religious, Dorothea, she's so religious that she wants to do good works for people. But even still, she walks around Middlemarch going like, ah, no one's poor enough for me to be nice to them. <laughs> that is it. That's like, I don't know. I think that's uh, fairly typical of like the the rich white 19th century woman of being mm-hmm. like, I, I'm going to be a philanthropist. But, like, it has to be obvious to me the good that I'm doing. Yes. Like, I have to feel good about myself and, like, <laughs> lifting these people out of their squalor. Um, yeah. I think Dickens has some some characters who are like that, too, where it's just like, oh, no, this awful, like... I mean, we see it even now, like, the sort of yeah. rich white female alleged philanthropy that's just sort of self-indulgent. Yes, exactly. Um, I'll only give you money if you throw a gala for me and I can show up in evening dress. Yeah, if you can take pictures of me doing it. and I don't think Dorothea is doing it for the performance of other people. No. But I think that um, there is still something in like she's always saying like, I hate my money. It's so awful yeah. to have so much money. And she is saintly, and I think that comes from a place of sort of ignorance or lack of any other human experience besides being rich. Um, yeah. And they do, you know, I guess so that's the the ending of her story, that uh, she's going to lose Casabon's fortune mm-hmm. of ni- 1,900 pounds a year she'll lose if she marries Will Ladislaw. But she still has, I think it's like 700 a yeah, year. Yeah, it's still a significant amount of money. 
equivalent of 75,000 British pounds. So oh like God. however many American dollars that is, yeah. like 80, 90,000 American dollars a year. Um, and she's like, well, I guess we'll, I'll, I'll learn how to live off of this humble amount. I'll scrape by somehow. Chess. Yeah. And you're like, okay, you're going to be just fine. Oh and she God. is, you know, intelligent and she says like i'm gonna learn how to be responsible with my money and we have every reason to believe that she is capable of doing that and it's Mm -hmm. all gonna be fine yeah um but yeah they don't like everyone's like dorothea will become impoverished it's like (laughs) no no one is ever at risk of that and even when lydgate is in hundreds of pounds so like thousands of today's money of debt it's never actually um a real issue of like you will be homeless the way that people deal with debt in you know contemporary American life yeah it's like well you're just gonna have to keep promising IOUs to people and keep living in your mansion while like we you know sell some of your nice things like it's there's never a real risk yeah. To their life. Yeah. yeah. Literally, they have to sell some of the jewels. And you're like, I don't know about you, but I don't got any jewels like no. laying around. I don't have anything valuable except my car. Like, you exactly. know, it's, this is like the problems these people are facing. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. It's very charming. It's and, and then when you think again that the, the subheading of the book is a study of provincial life, you're like, what fucking province was this? Well, that is the yeah, the interesting thing is that um, you see you see the side of the provincial life, which is the wealthy landowners. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are servants throughout the novel and like uh, people who make occasional appearances with their like sort of phonetic dialect and yes. you know these working class people or the the cooks, the maids, the whoever, like those are actually the majority of the town of Middlemarch are these people, these working class um, mm-hmm. you know village citizens ish. Yeah. Um, but that's not the story we're being told. Yeah. Even when like Dorothea has a maid, I think her name is Tantrip. It's yes. like there are named working class characters, but that story of like whose story we're getting is like this is provincial life, these rich people with these petty problems. Yeah. It's so funny because in, you know, the popularity of like Downton Abbey and stuff like that, which obviously takes place in like the thirties or the twenties and the thirties, we're so used to seeing now as modern consumers of this as like upstairs, downstairs, but mm-hmm. Middlemarch does not concern itself with downstairs ever. Yeah. It it is, and I think, uh, as you said, though, I think she just, George Eliot is not fond of this provincial life. Yeah. And she wants to, to point out the hypocrisy and the, you know, performative nature of, like, socialite living. Mm-hmm. And so by doing that, she's just like, these are the people who get the attention and who also who read the books. That's right? true. Like the readers of her novels are going to be this sort of, or at least a middle class, at fairly educated yeah. reader. Yeah. So that's, yeah. yeah present to them the perils of upward mobility, <laughs> almost. Oh, what a good description. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, this or the, the perils of love. Yes, not love. exactly. Don't try to marry up, kids. Like, just <laughs> dangerous things are afoot. And I wonder if this would be a good time to talk about Ladislaw as a character. Yeah, let's go into him. The first time, to speak to your point, the first time I read the book five or six years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, early in graduate school, I was like, what a romantic hero. And now I'm just like, what an emotional boy. Like, he is... (laughs) He is immature. He overblows everything. Everything. And like me, for some reason, me, when I was in my early 20s, was like, oh, how sexy and like emotionally available. And now I'm just like, this guy needs to calm down. Like (laughs) he is the romantic hero. And I think we do still, even if we see his faults, we do want him to be with Dorothea. But like this boy is a, a little bit special as a hero. It's hard to not want him to be with Dorothea because she only really has two options. And one of them is Casabon, who's dead inside. And the other one is the man who feels too much. And you're just kind of like, maybe go with the guy who has too much emotion because it's a little bit better than like being married to a log. (laughs) Yeah, I I didn't know what you were going to say. I thought you were going to say married to a rock, but a log is better. Yeah. Yeah, Casabon is like unavailable in every way. Yeah. Um, and and then I tweeted to you about this, but um, I can say this because I have both Pisces son and moon, so I'm just <laughs> overly emotional all the time. And that is Will Ladislaw. He's just like, but that's that's Will Ladislaw. He's just this like it never uh, stops. Every- Everything he says, I was writing down uh, some of his dialogue to send to my friends, and it's like, there is no other woman but her. Yes. I will never remember a single thing on this earth except for her. (laughs) There is no option except, like, everything is, like, 159% or 0%. (laughs) And he's supposed to be, like, a little bit older than Dorothea, so he's, like, 25-ish is what I gathered. And I'm like, whoa, like that, yeah. buddy, like, dial it back. But that's the thing. I was sending some of these bits of dialogue um, to my friends, and they were like, yeah, well, he's, like, 19, right? And I was like, no, actually. No. He's supposed to be slightly more, and that's the thing. It's like, he's lived in Paris. He's mm-hmm. studied in Europe. He's, like... He's supposed to be, and I'm sure, like, he is, he's more well-rounded culturally. Yes. Uh, Like, he's had more experience, and we gather as well that politically he is in favor of reforms that help the poor. Yeah. And he is, like, I think he is likable in a lot of ways, and he's not... Because you can compare him to Lydgate pretty easily in these, like, passionate male lovers, mm-hmm. except that he is he's not violent and he's not um, overtly sexually forward or any of these yeah. things. But, like, emotionally, he there's a lot of, oh, my gosh, I don't know if you noticed this, but there is a lot of, like, his face flushed yes. and his ears were red and, like, like... I was trying to decide, like, is he really sexually aroused or is he just angry? Like, (laughs) is this like a code for Ladislaw, like, just, you know, like, being 
Yeah. <laughs> he flounces more than the women do. Like when he's like upset about something, he will just like flounce from a room. And you're just like, Jesus, even the women with the petticoats on don't do that. Like calm it down a little bit, buddy. And then like when uh, Dorothea sort of catches him sort of like flirting with Rosamond because Rosamond's like, my husband doesn't love me, so I need to find attention from somewhere. I know. And so she like chases him down essentially. And Dorothea catches them. And he's just like, the only solution for this is to like remove myself from England. You're like, holy <laughs> balls, dude. No. How about you just go to to the girl and say it wasn't what it looked like. Rosamond's a flirt. Ta-da! But that's what I mean. Rosamond even says, why don't you chase after her? And he's like, chase after her? She'll never believe me. I've ruined everything. And you're like, actually, literally in the novel, the next day, Rosamond, like, just tells Dorothea, hey, just so you know, um, I was trying to flirt with him and he turned me down. And it takes Rosamond five seconds to explain the situation uh-huh. that Will was like, you know, Ladislaus just like, I can never recover from this. Um, it just it shows how like, little respect he has for Dorothea. Do you think? I feel like he has, I, I think he thinks, and I don't know if he is, but I think he thinks he's putting her on this pedestal of like unattainability. Yeah. Like, I could never be worthy of her and I have to walk on eggshells to be worthy of this goddess. I think that's um, probably it, yeah. And I've debased myself in front of her and it's just like, mm. <laughs> Like, they they have a close friendship. So the the beginning when she's married to Casabon, they're just friends and yeah. like proper Victorian non-cheating-on-your-husband friends. They just like talk about art and like yeah. have polite conversation and so it's like when they mutually realize that they quote love each other um which in itself is just so so different from it's like chaste companionship yes we think of falling in love as like i've been dating my partner for for many months now and Mm -hmm. we've we've been very intimate and now we know we love each other this is just like we enjoy each other's companionship and we are mildly attracted to one another. Oh boy, it's lovely to do. <laughs> Um, which is so funny. It's yeah. so fantastic. Because that's literally how Dorothea ends up with Casabon too. She's just like, we had dinner together once. He seems all right. Let's get hitched. Or yeah, it's like she enjoys his dinner conversation and was like, I would like to talk to this fellow more. And it's like, you know, if you actually had just had a couple more dinners with him, mm-hmm. you, you would have realized he was a bore. <laughs> yeah. Or even, I mean, you're right, because Celia is such a, a interesting foil to Dorothea because we're supposed to view her as more um, submissive and she follows the rules and mm-hmm. she marries the right guy and she like has a baby. She follows all the traditional steps. But it's like, she she goes to Dorothea and is like, this guy is old, he chews his soup too loud, he yes. has a mole with a hair in it, like, he's not You could do better. Yeah, and and she, like, she's actually just, I think any, any sibling would do this. She's just looking out and being like, are you really sure? Yeah. Like, you know, you, you have other on this. options. Yeah, Dorothea is like... 
I could do no better than to like help a great man with his great works. Yeah. To me, Celia is definitely like unsung hero of the book. She tries so damn hard to get Dorothea to like just on a slightly better path. And Dorothea just pushes back every single step of the way. And finally, Celia is just like, I'm going to go live my life because screw you. Like you are just not worth the effort. I know, and it is helpful to view her as more of a, like, the glue that holds the the family together, Mm -hmm. because um, at the end, when Dorothea decides to marry Ladislaw, her family is like, we're gonna shun her, blah, blah, and eventually Celia is like, you know, I have a baby, I want my sister to spend time with my family, Uh, Dorothea eventually has a, you know, gets married and has a baby, I want to meet her child, like, she just is like, this is ridiculous. Why are you keeping me exactly. from my sister for like, not again, not even a bad decision. Yeah. Like La- Ladislaw is slightly social class beneath Dorothea. Yeah. But they're not actually broke. He's not actually from a bad yeah. anything. And you know what? Even if he was like, he himself is a, is a respectable person. Yeah. And so it, like, who cares how, you know, you rejected your family's fortune anyways. So like, why does it matter if they made their money through, you know, gambling, prostitution, whatever? Like, who cares? It's who cares? not his, it's not his burden to bear. He's not even a part of that. I know. Um, and I know. Celia is like, I mean, she kind of in her own like weeping way, she's like really, really sad and, and appealing to her husband to be like, we need to change this. But it does bring the family together in the end that Celia's recognition of how ridiculous the whole thing is like she's my sister i love her yeah we should just get over it yeah and and her husband is sir james chetham who wanted to marry um dorothy in the beginning of the book and then he really she has this amazing power over him because he's higher class than celia is and she's also the second daughter she's not really inheriting anything and he's just kind of like all right you know he bows to his wife throughout the book. It's fantastic. She gets him to do whatever she wants. Well, I wonder, because my opinion on James Chetham changes every time. It's like, at first, you, like, if only, like, we just wrote a fan fiction where uh, Dorothea marries James Chetham at the beginning, mm-hmm. like, her life would have been fine. Yes. Um, she wouldn't have had this passionate sort of more modern love like we're led to believe her and Ladislaw really connect with each other emotionally yeah um and are are genuinely happy and and stuff but if like Sir James is a nice guy yeah he clearly listens to his wife yep um and if if you go to the very beginning he is trying to woo Dorothea by um like fulfilling her plan to build these cottages for poor people and um he's doing it because he wants her to like him yeah but when she marries Casabon, he continues doing it anyway yeah because he like committed himself to it and he goes all right follow through yeah he's like you know what i'm not gonna tell all these poor people that i'm building them houses and then not do it just because of a woman like at a loss of his own personal you know money Mm -hmm. he follows through and he like learns from Dorothea how to make improvements for his, you know, tenants, essentially. Like, like, I think he's, he's a pretty good. Yeah. He seems kind of like a rake at the beginning, but he ends up being kind of a stand up guy who has 
you know, um, prejudices because of who he is in his class, but he kind of like gets talked out of them or reasoned out of them throughout the book. That's kind of how I'm thinking. Like at first I'm like, "Eh," and then like you get to the end when like for a while he's being supportive of Dorothea and then he's really horrible about the whole Ladislaw thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, but he's horrible because he's like this, you know, besmirches her character that, now people are going to think they were having an affair and like yeah. as her brother-in-law this offends me so it's almost like he's coming from this place of respectability and yeah. protectiveness and then when he shuns her it's like you calm down you're ridiculous yeah um and celia also know. explains that like it's not dorothy is doing it's her surly shitty you know like dead husband's doing that all of this sort of paul is brought upon her like she didn't do anything to warrant being treated like this and james chetham is like fine you're right <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and, and that that does help that james chetham is like yeah i always really hated that Casablanca yes. guy like <laughs> he really was awful and um when dorothea chooses Casabon instead of james chetham it's like he didn't even view him as a rival. Like, no. he's not even jealous. He's just, like, perplexed and shocked. Because <laughs> it's not like you picked another young, attractive man. Yeah. Or you, you know, you picked this old, uh, you know, yeah, not that there's anything wrong like with not. a scholar, but he's like an old log book. Like, yeah. he is himself an antique book. That's yeah. it. Yeah, Chatham is almost, like, not even insulted because he's like, well, if that's what she wanted, I sure as shit wasn't it. So, all right, like... Yeah, like you can't be any more different. So yeah. I guess she was never going to be into me. Exactly. I'll marry her sister instead. Oh, her sister's gorgeous and nice and a perfect like lady of the manor. I lucked out. Good for me. Pat on the back, Sir James Chatham. <laughs> and also, you know, Dorothea has opinions and the book always says that, but she doesn't share them. She doesn't like stand up for herself. And I think James actually appreciates the way that Celia sort of tells him how she really feels yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how to wrap this up because it's just such an interesting book. And it really does have all of these fantastic machinations and everybody. And it's one of those things about like stories that take places in small towns is that like everybody knows each other and everybody knows everybody's like business and history and how they're related. And it's just if you can take the time to read it thoroughly, which it does take a long time, like do it. It's a fantastic, fascinating book. Which is also, I don't know if this is a good party note, but there's a, a line somewhere in the honeymoon in Rome mm -hmm. that a, a, another scholar pointed out to me. And it's like these, you know, these great, um, these great halls of his mind turned out to be like small passages that led to nowhere. And this uh, scholar pointed this out in like a, a talk I went to as an impotence metaphor that like <laughs> she, she expected this marriage to be consummated and, you know, she never has children with Casabon and like yeah. he doesn't care about her and doesn't meet any of her expectations. So it's sort of just like she marries this, you know, this useless, flaccid yeah. log man um <laughs> and then to spend the, the last third of the novel figuring out what to do with her life now that she's a widow at yeah. you know age 22 yeah and her lust for this guy who came in out of nowhere who she never expected to meet <laughs> it's so cool yeah, uh, yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for discussing this book with me. I, there's literally no one else that I would have like loved to discuss this book. You had so much interesting stuff to talk about because you, you view it from a completely different perspective than I ever had previously. So I can't thank you enough for, for coming on the show and talking about it. Thank you so much. I mean, the fact that you agreed to read it and that people might actually listen to us discuss the longest, you know, book of our, yeah. of our podcast, possibly. I don't know which ones you've done, but I um, will uh, highly suggest people and normally I don't do this. Read this on an ebook because I have a paperback and it weighs like four pounds and I dropped it on my face oh, a couple times. Read it on a Kindle, please. I beg of you. <laughs> Seriously, that's great advice. It'll also feel less daunting. Yes. Because um, when you get and you're like, it's, it's you know, 400 pages in and like the action hasn't even reached its climax yeah. or a slight point in the rise. But it's, it's worth it. I think it's the point is you're supposed to examine it as like many, many stories with different highs and lows. And yeah. And they're fun. They're so good. I don't know. Even watch the miniseries first, which I don't usually recommend. But yeah. if you know the voice and story of each character and then you read it, it really helps to to then like set you up to recognize. Yeah, to guide the story um, a little bit. Yeah, because it, it, it does feel wandering from a 21st century, you know, viewership. It's just like, wow, there's so much, you know, yeah, multi-plot a... novels. Yeah. It's a, there's a lot going on. Um, so Miranda, how can everybody keep in touch with you and your work? Yes. Awesome. So, um, I'm on Twitter as a, you know, sort of Victorianist and also person who likes reading. Mm -hmm. Uh, my Twitter handle is Mirandactyl. That's Miranda CTL, uh, sort of like a pterodactyl, but spelled wrong. <laughs> I'm We're stuck I, with that. Handle. I will put links everywhere too. So don't worry about that. Yeah. So Mirandactyl, um, and then if you like talking about vaguely Victorian things, I have my own podcast called Podcast 13. Um, the handle for that is Warehouse13Pod, so Warehouse13POD, and that is a science fiction television show from about 10 years ago. I loved that, that features show. features... Oh my gosh, it has a female H.G. Wells and gay and bisexual characters. Um, and every week we have a guest scholar on history who explains, you know, the actual history that this science fiction like history show is playing with. Um, and we're a feminist podcast. We try to have women and queer people. Um, so it's super, super fun. And as always, you can follow Fuckboys of Literature on Twitter at Fuckboys of Lit, that's B-O-I-S, or find my personal Twitter at Ms. Emily Edwards. We are also on Instagram under the exact same handles. Be sure to check out our website at fuckboysoflit.com where you can find some fun blog posts, a link to our merch shop, or other ways to support. And if you can, some of the best support is rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you tune in, especially if it's iTunes. You have no idea how much I appreciate reading your comments and kind words. Thank you a million times for listening this week. I'm Emily Edwards, and have a good one. Proper Victorian non-cheating on your husband friends.